Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that thinks that all England players 29 years old or above should bow out for next international tournament. My name is Rupert Meadows and I've written a broadcast about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sports. My co-host Cameron McDonald has spent three years working as FA Licence Intermediary here in the UK. But above all else... We are fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Rupert. Um, and yeah, a little bit of a little bit of a sob one here. Uh, so to lighten the mood, uh, I do just want to mention when you sort of said that thing there, you know, twenty nine and over, uh, which I, I don't necessarily know that I agree with. But uh, one thing it did remind me of is, um, and I'm sure many people will uh, align with this. My favourite uh, Twitter football conversation of all time, uh, when um, a fan yeah. was talking about Jackson <laughs> Martinez uh, being twenty eight years old, and he was something like it was something like tw- six months since his twenty eighth year, and that fan was going he's close to 29 then he has 28 because the other guy was going no he's uh he's 28 until he's 29 that's how it works um so are you saying yeah anyone who's over 29 is that sort of you know if someone's 28 really in six want, months I really do they just count to encapsulate i think harry kane and, and above <laughs> okay well look i mean that's a, a, a well not a great place to start but there's lots of lots of exciting stuff about the world cup to get into and there's still a tournament to watch i know any england fans listening you know it might be hard uh you know heartbreaking to, to to watch it go on but there's lots of exciting stuff like you know morocco Lionel messi's uh you know best chance at a world cup in a long time um but we will unfortunately have to start with the uh the big misery england are out we sure are and we we had a solid run um i don't think we necessarily you know massively massively improved in terms of like performances and success um but some of the players coming through are are really exciting um and, and we did see that on saturday yeah i mean that i mean you know anyone who lives in this country will have already seen all the key talking points but just to reiterate i do think we were really unlucky to to lose this game uh, i think there are a number of reasons that the game went against England and that is always going to happen in football to a degree you kind of have to accept that whether you like it or not I am certainly in the, in the not category for for club and for country referees just aren't that good and they're going to make mistakes and you kind of have to build that into your into your sort of game management um, which is tough when you're playing against a team as good as France because you kind of need the margins to go your way if anything uh, to be able to beat them but just things like the uh, the Chumeni goal which I still for the life of me can't understand why that wasn't brought back for a foul on Bakayo Saka. Bakayo Saka in general just um, being kicked to shreds, um, you know, across the game, which, you know, didn't even necessarily limit his his usefulness that much because he was still, I think, England's best player. Um, but just not seeing players carded for that, which sort of, if a player's not carded for doing it, it means they know they're free to sort of lash out the next time. And the next time, as if they're on a yellow, they're a little bit more careful. Um, and then, of course, you know, the... Um, the, the, the penalty, which uh, didn't necessarily go against us, but was just very unfortunate that Harry Kane decided that that was the moment uh, to uh, <laughs> to try something new uh, and, and and attempt a, a bit of a rugby uh, rugby conversion. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because I feel like um, when we were doing our preview for the game, I think I said that I thought Bukayo was going to be the the most important player, and his his performance was going to hinge on whether or not England were successful. I wasn't even thinking about. I really, when I said that, I was thinking about the fact that you know he he is such a good player to to run the line. He's such a good player to be defensive as well as creative going forwards. But I mean, this was a purely all-out attacking performance, and he was exceptional. Yeah, he really was. And I, I agree. I think it's it's interesting that we won't really be talking a lot about Kylian Mbappe in this game, just because he was he was limited very effectively. It wasn't even so much Saka doing that. Um, he obviously had his role to play, but he was very free to sort of fill in that space behind. And it was actually one of those interesting situations where um, 
it's, it's the the best sort of comparison I can use is kind of like Trent Alexander-Arnold for Liverpool. It's like, you know, ha- having someone who is just absolutely all-out attacking aggressive is really good when you're playing against a team that you're better than. Um, but if you're playing against a team that can exploit it and get in their space behind, you, you kind of get sucker punched. And France is so much better than everyone else that I think no one thought there was going to be a chance for Bukayo Saka to exploit those spaces in behind uh, killing Mbappe when he's sort of marauding up by the by the sort of right corner flag, or left corner flag, rather. Uh, but he did, he did, and he, he you know, played very well he twisted a lot of players bloods got fouled a number of times obviously won that that first penalty as well um and yeah I think there were a couple of positives that I was sort of holding close to my heart as I was sort of sat close to tears in, in the pub and, and that was certainly one of them that a player who has spent the last 18 months you know mentally recovering from uh you know or yeah not, not even 18 months the, the, the last sort of Go have a look. Yeah, it's eighteen months. Scott's time has flown by. You know, mentally recovering from the, uh, the the wounds that he'll have sort of inflicted on himself, that are also inflicted, you know, by people sort of abusing him uh, to come back and, and perform like this in England's biggest game in you know God knows how many years is is a real testament. He was, of course, not the only player to do it. I think a lot of these players can leave with their heads held high. Jude Bellingham obviously was was another massive star. I think Phil Foden was fantastic. Uh, Declan Rice. Declan Rice had a, had a fantastic game as well. Was was winning the ball back and sort of uh, showing on the world stage why the English media rates him so highly. I know that he's often sort of a figure of ridicule elsewhere. Where people go like 100 million for him if his name was uh, you know Declan or something. He'd be about 10 million pounds. Um, <laughs> but uh, but no no some 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 really good positives. And you know as you mentioned there, you sort of alluded to this idea of. 29 and over shouldn't play at the next World Cup. There is a big positive here, which is that so many of these players are really young. Um, and it's funny, actually. I don't know if we've ever mentioned this uh, on the podcast, but you have, since we've been about 16, 17, always had this thing about England winning the 2026 World Cup. Um <laughs> And you know what? Based on some of these players, it, you know there are obviously loads of good young players at other other teams. But if the core of your players, like your Phil Foden's and your Bakayo Saka's and your Jude Bellingham's, all continue to improve at the at the rate they are, hey, it won't be necessarily Mbappe. Everyone's going on about next tournament. It'll be one of those guys. Yeah, it could well be. Um, you know, it's a uh, something that I have held close to my heart. I think I remember. Um, when I, I used to was doing some some writing, I remember looking into you know the grassroots projects that the FA implemented. I think it was in 2014 um, to really try and get much more um, high end, not just youngsters but also coaches and managers uh, and things like that, and just really improve the infrastructure of football across England. and And you could really see a parallel between uh, Spain when they did that um, in around I think it was maybe 2003. Um, and then winning the World Cup in, in 2010. And then I think Germany also had a, a similar grassroots um, model that they implemented uh, several years before they then won the World Cup in 2014. So I was kind of wishful thinking, as I think is, is our right as England fans, um, but definitely hoping that maybe, you know, the, the writing was on the wall for, for later on. And, and it does seem like things are coming to, to a point where we're going to have a really encouraging um, young or coming of age team, you know, all these players are going to be turning like 26, 27, 28 um, by by the time 2026 rolls around. So it, it is exciting. Um, and look, I, I agree with you that we were unlucky. I think the referee was was terrible. Um, and, and that is one thing to, to point out. But I, I do also think, I think two things. One, I think France played better than us. And two, I think that we can't keep thinking of ourselves as the underdogs and France, this amazing team that we were never going to beat unless we got lucky or unless the cards fell in our favour. We've got a really good team. 
And we had a chance of winning this game. And I think that it just wasn't there. It wasn't fully there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I say that, and I agree, England are, are very good. I do think France are slightly better. I think, actually, in my opinion, I think England play better. But I think whenever you play a team, I'm sure French, French fans would have thought the same thing. You need that little rub of the green to give you the edge against these sort of top, top teams. It'd be the same, you know, against Argentina or, or not this year, obviously, but, you know, a peak Brazil. Um, you've got to have those those moments of, of, of luck and those moments of magic, and, and that's what they had. You know, France will had Kane scored that penalty who knows so they you know it is sort of lucky for them that uh, a guy who has scored many 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 penalties in his career and is one of the best penalty takers on the planet uh couldn't do it that time um but look let's let's talk takeaways because I think we can sort of go back and forth about how unlucky we were blah 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 and it is only Monday as, as, as we record this so the dust has settled a little bit hasn't settled entirely but I kind of like that I kind of want an emotional response we've talked about a lot of the good stuff <laughs> you'll, you'll get one <laughs> Talked about a lot of the uh, the good stuff for England. What are the what are the learnings? What do England need to look at at this game and go? That wasn't good enough, or that needs to change, or you know, what what needs to be you know ripped out and started again in the next tournament, if indeed there is anything. I think that I think it's I think it's it's game management and it's it's understanding what it takes to win and it's having having grit, not just not just being like plucky plucky people who are like. Oh, they're all good lads. They they're gonna do their best. It's like we are here to try and win a tournament, and I don't think there's enough of that backbone in this team. Yeah. Well, yes and no. no I- and I'll give you I'll give you a good I'll give you an example. Okay, I'll give you a good example. Um, you know the whole World Cup yellow card suspension rule, mm-hmm. right? Um, if you get two yellow cards, um, you can get suspended, and then by the time you get to the semi-finals, it all gets wiped. So if you're on one yellow card by that point, it gets wiped. Yeah. Um. So, one France player was on one yellow card already, notably Aurelien Chouameni. So, you know, if you'd harried him and if you'd overloaded that midfield and you'd forced him, you could have really put the pressure on him to maybe mess up. He'd get into his head. Um, and and that's, ha- that's ultimately how you win games. I was watching this, um, this video about how Mourinho won his 2004 Champions League final. And, and one of the ways they did it was that when they went to... Um, Oh, I think it was maybe Deportivo. Mourinho realised that like quite a few of their players were one yellow card away from suspension, mm. and he just kept being that he got all of his players to like harry the players all game, being like one yellow card, don't don't hit me, don't hit me. Like if you if you foul me, if you go for a tackle and you foul me, and you get yellow, you're gonna miss the final, you're gonna miss the final, and then it basically got all of these players inside their own heads. They couldn't play their own game, and it just knocked them. And we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to how like play the actual practical version of the game where where you look at how what are like the win conditions for this game. And I think the midfield is a really good example because we talked about it beforehand. France play with a flat two. They they kind of push Griezmann back a little bit um, in this game, but but they typically have two players that sit um, in in front of their defence. And if we'd overloaded that midfield, I think we would have had a much better chance. But instead, we decided to push Henderson really far wide to try and kind of push up the right flank. It's why so much play went through Bukayo Saka. And that was good, but it ultimately meant that we lost the midfield battle. And you saw that with the amount of space that they got. Antoine Griezmann, I genuinely don't think he was tackled once this game. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't think he was. Um, I, I want to see his, his individual highlights back, but I, I don't think anyone touched him. Um, and many obviously got the goal. He had so much space on the edge of the box to to hit that. Obviously, Bellingham ran, ran up, but was was too late. Um, and I, I just think that we didn't play 
I don't know, I think we've got it in our heads that that we are the underdogs and we just shouldn't be. We can't go into games like that. Yeah, look, it's, it's a great point and I, I really like the uh, the example you've used there uh, or sort of the, the sort of the thing you mentioned with Tremaine and the example you've used to sort of back it up. I, I really like that. Um, it's quite a nice little tidbit there and, and something we definitely should have done. Let's talk about, um, you know, the big elephant in the room um, because there's a player who has represented England for a long time. I think historically, you know, we all look at him as England's best player. He's England's captain, but he's never really done the business for England, um, you know, when it counts. He'll score a load of goals in the group stages or score goals when games are gone. You know, he got a golden boot at the at the last World Cup um, because he you know, scored a filled his boots against the likes of, sort of Panama, um, which no disrespect to Panama, but you would hope that he'd be scoring against them. Harry Kane. This is a guy who is blessed with talent. He's definitely one of the best number nines on the face of the earth. In a way, though, I come. I sometimes kind of feel like Harry Kane is like the inverse DDA Drogba. In in that, like DDA Drogba, <laughs> if you actually look at his scoring record in the Premier League, it's not ridiculously good. It's not bad by any means, of course. But there's only like a handful of of maybe two even where he scored more than twenty goals. He's got sort of less Premier League goals than someone like Raheem Sterling, which obviously yeah, Sterling's been played longer. But it's it's not the sort of super prolific. He's not up there with in terms of numbers with the sort of the Agueros and the Henrys, which I think mentally is where people sort of. Um, sort of compartmentalize or sort of like pigeonhole him when they're thinking about who are the best strikers in Premier League history. The thing that it always comes back to is that he was just an absolutely elite big game player. And Harry Kane is kind of the reverse. I can't think of a single game I've watched for club or country when the chips have been down for Spurs or for England and Harry Kane's really needed to turn it on and perform and and he's done that you know I think about the Champions League final against Liverpool a couple of years ago I think about the Carabao Cup final against Manchester City a few years ago I think about the Euros final last year um, and then of course this game as well where he did score a penalty and he had one great shot early on um, but other than that he was dropping back a lot there was a point when he was sort of almost playing like a left back um, and then of course in the real real sort of crunch moment the sort of apex of of you know, not just his career, but the career of all the players in that England team so far, and of Gareth Southgate, he blazed it over the bar. And I'm just like, is is it impossible for him? Is he someone who lets the moments get to him that much that he'll never be as good as we know he can be unless there's no stakes? Yes. <laughs> in a word, yeah, that, that is who he is. Um, I think, I mean, it was so frustrating watching him at times against France. There was one point where... You know, we, we've argued a lot and, we, and complained a lot about the fact that, um, you know, he shouldn't be dropping back as deep as he does. I don't even care that much that he does it because I get it. It seems to work sometimes. There was a point, though, where he was in in England's half and like just just walking over the halfway line. He plays a pass and then just walks towards the goal. The whole play is ahead of him and he's not jogging. He's not running. He's not sprinting. He's walking. And I, I just think that that, again, is represented the fact that he doesn't want the chances. He doesn't want those moments. He can't handle those moments. And I'm, I'm just... I think someone made a really interesting point. Um, I think it was on Saturday. Or it might have been yesterday when talking to a friend about it. But they said that what Gareth Southgate's done really well is build a brand around this team in a way that hasn't been the case. And I agree with that. I think it's really nice that we've got this new-look team. It's exciting. It's vibrant. It's young. It's talented. However, the the flip side of that is that our brand is Gareth Southgate. 
who's a lovely man, I'm sure, I would happily have dinner with him. Um, but I, I would also happily play poker with him. Um, and and the, the, other, the other person is Harry Kane. Harry Kane has been the, the talisman of this side. And both of them have a ceiling. And that ceiling is that they can't deliver on the final stage. And and like even if Harry Kane in four years' time is still our best striker, I don't want him starting. I don't. Uh, it's. I don't think he should be. I don't think it would be um, you know, responsible to do that because he's shown that when it comes to the crunch, he can't do it. And that's fine. You know, that's that's just who he is. He's a very, very, very good striker when it comes to all games before the quarterfinals of major competitions. But but this isn't his. This isn't his arena. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's been extensive evidence now to suggest that for all the good that he can do over the course of a regular season for Spurs, and he will, uh, you know, I'm sure go on to win many more Premier League Golden Boots, and he may even, you know, break Shearer's record if he if he keeps at it. He he just can't do it. I I, I could see him ending his career with a Premier League goal scoring record and no trophies. Yeah, and so, and so, so in, um, in, you know, in that sense, it does put Gareth Southgate in a in a tricky bind because you know one might say, how do you not play a player who has, let's say, in a few in four years' time, for a thirty three year old Harry Kane has just scored thirty five Premier League goals and he's had an absolutely monster season? Do you, do you play him then? Well, yeah, you, you can see how it's hard hard to not. But at, time and again, we've been shown the evidence that you know when the spotlight's on him, he freezes and, and he's and he's not going to do it for you. Exactly, and I think um you know that. It really did encapsulate the whole the whole England setup at the moment because you look at players like Harry Maguire, Harry Kane, even maybe Kieran Trippier um, and Jordan Henderson, and there were really good benefits from trusting these older players. Jordan Henderson had a really good tournament. Mm. I think he was tactically used wrong in his game, but he had a really good tournament. Um, and Harry Maguire was much more solid than everyone thought he was going to be. So it was good that Southgate trusted these players, but ultimately it was also our downfall because... It meant that we haven't we haven't blooded enough youth. We and I'm not saying that a different scenario would have yielded a different result. I think we did just come short. Um, but ultimately, I think I think if Southgate stays for this next World Cup and if Kane stays for this next World Cup, we will continue to fall short. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Now it's like you. you... On the face of it, Gareth Southgate's had a great record, but there's so much potential in this squad. You don't want to keep rolling the dice just because he seems like a nice guy. And I feel like even in this game, even though, yes, I, I do genuinely believe England got very unlucky and, you know, it's it's another what if, you know, if one or two things had gone differently, in my you know opinion, the correct way, like Chimaney's goal, um, England could have won. But there are just things like when England are 2-1 down, bring on Mason Mount and Raheem Sterling. Was there anyone there? Was even the sort of most sort of like true blue Chelsea fan going, these guys will shake things up? Um, you know, Raheem Sterling, especially because he has obviously just come back from the sort of really upsetting incident that he had, um, you know, where he had to fly home because his, his house had been broken into. So he'd come back, he'd like obviously missed a lot of training. And, you know, I don't know the guy, but it was not ridiculous to assume that maybe he's already at a, at a bit of a mentally uh, soft place. So you're going to bring him on ahead of Marcus Rashford, who has been with the squad the whole time, hasn't had to deal with any trauma. Oh, and also has had a really good tournament so far. Yeah, it, it was a it was a weird choice. I mean, uh, top line, I can kind of get it, which is that like maybe you know Sterling can unlock a defense. Sterling can have that little bit of quality. Sterling can can turn a player and can be fouled, and fouls seem to be working for us. I get all of that, but it does feel like it's wood for the trees. You've 
like you're I think it's literally sometimes it feels like Southgate's reading how to be a manager and how to make these decisions from a book yeah, it's, it, it just shows like a lack of trust in anyone who's not sort of the established. Like Raheem Sterling has just not been good for about 18 months. And the last time he played well was when he was playing for any of the Euros. He's not even been particularly, it wasn't even particularly great for City before then, that season. Um, so he's not been in good form for ages and ages and ages. He hasn't been in great form this tournament. Why is he coming on ahead of uh, ahead of Marcus Rashford? Or Mason Mount is another one. I know he won the penalty, but another player who has just been really anonymous for club and country this season why Why is he the f- sort of first person you're going to to shake things up when you've got sort of someone like Jack Grealish, for example, who, again, has been like pretty solid form this season, gives people something to think about. Whereas, I, I you know, I imagine, I don't know this for sure, but I imagine that if I'm a, a French player, one of the fullbacks or one of the midfielders, and I see Mason Mount warming up, I'm thinking, great, time for a bit of a break. Whereas if I see Jack Grealish warming up, I'm going, okay, you know what, actually this guy can catch us, so stay alert. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think um, Mason Mount was not the was not the player to strike fear into the hearts. Um, and you know what? I actually also kind of disagree that that England played better. Yes, we had more attacking play, but France were winning, so they didn't need to. France went one goal up quite early on, and they dominated that early fifteen minutes. Um, you know, they played through our high press, which forced us to sit back, and then they had loads of space. And they found a guy on the edge of the box with that loads of space and he scored it. And they just sat back. They didn't need to score again. And then as soon as we scored, 20 minutes later, they popped one in again and then just sat back again. That game went their way. Like, make no mistake about it. Us, us like, constantly trying to put pressure on them but ultimately falling short was was their game plan. Um, so, you know, I think, I think you can talk about XG and stuff all, all day long, but ultimately, like, one team went in with a with a clear plan of how to beat us and and executed it flawlessly. Yeah, I also think it's funny how um neither team used all five subs. France only made one sub, which was quite strange. Um so clearly yeah, they Why, why change it? Yeah, they, why yeah, change they, it? It was working. That's literally it. Yeah, they, it was working. They believed in the uh, the the 11th but they didn't even like bring on defenders at the end to sort of like sure up the two on win. They were like, "Now nah, this this will work." And and it did. Um well, look, that's, that's England-France. Obviously, uh, a little bit to mention with France there. Olivier Giroud scored the winner to become uh, France's all-time top scorer. Um, you know, what a career he's had. And if he get, if he now gets back-to-back, um, you know, World Cup <laughs> wins, he will just... It'll just be a fact that he's one of the sort of uh, most prolific and decorated strikers in world football, which when I think about how he was playing in the Premier League like four or five years ago, or six, seven years ago, is, is a very weird thought indeed. I mean, I th- we might even have a conversation about whether or not he's the most successful um, and most effective World Cup striker of all time. Well, that's always going to be Pele, isn't it? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> unless Rude knocks it over to 2026 as well and, and scores. Uh, or is it going to be Pele or Just Fontaine who scored those like 13 goals in one tournament? Just one more cup that they didn't win. Hmm. Well, um, but but yeah, well, <laughs> he, he might not, he might not else Maybe he gets second though. <laughs> I think I'm still having juice to Fontaine at the moment. Um, well, look, let's talk about some of the other quarterfinals uh, because I don't want to wall off for too long. And also, every single quarterfinal was an absolute scorcher. Um, let's start with one that was um, I'm going to say the least entertaining in terms of the football, but probably the most entertaining in terms of the result. Uh, that being Morocco beating Portugal one 0 to become the first African team to ever play in the semi-finals of a World Cup. Yeah, I mean, what an absolutely unreal performance from them, even to go, you know, one one man down by the end. Um, that's how hard they fought. 
um, to to really grind out this game. And they sat back and they 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 soaked up so much pressure from from Portugal with the ball, but then gave it right back immediately. You know, I think they had um, seventy three percent possession to Portugal, but Morocco had nine shots to their eight. So you know, just such an effective counter attacking strategy that that paid off because ultimately they they got their goal in the first half and then were able to close out the game. They, these guys are closers. This is exciting. Um, you know, they know how to win games. Um, so I, I love it. Um, they will be the team that I'm supporting from now on. I, I, I'm, yeah, me, me as well, uh, certainly because it would be amazing to watch a, an African team winner. I'm, I'm also just loving, like, the, one of the things I love so much about Morocco, and I would, I would not like it as much from sort of one of the quote-unquote bigger teams, but because it's a team like Morocco, I, I have a lot of time for it. I love how they've just been making, like, no effort to like play into what their opponents want and they keep boiling everyone's piss like i think for all of belgium spain and portugal they've had like players or fans or managers or whatever come out and be like they're not playing real football they just sit there and park the bus and then sort of hit on the counter <laughs> and rocket are like yeah but what are you gonna do about it you've seen us do this like four times this tournament and you still can't do anything about it so get fucked it's like oh cool you're you're so good then yeah literally like why can't you score then yeah exactly i i, I, um, I really love it um and I just think, like, Agreed. it's always so funny when you have those those comments because it's like, what, what? You're basically just admitting there, Belgium slash Spain slash Portugal, that yeah, okay, fine, you can beat them on your terms, but everyone knew that, so that's why they're not playing on your terms. That's not by mistake they've chosen to part the bus. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so sour grapes, isn't it? It's so funny when they're like, oh, they don't, uh, they don't pass enough. Oh, they, they defend too much, and everyone's like, why, why won't this team let us beat? Them? Yeah, ex- exactly. It's like, yeah. <laughs> we all know, Morocco included, that you'd beat them in a in a one to one if you're both sort of going for it. But that's why they're not doing that. I just remember that um, that I, I can't remember who they were playing, but I think it was Sean Dyche that um, was just just like one of the interviewers told him in the presser afterwards that like the other manager had been complaining about how like they weren't playing proper football and he just laughed yeah yeah I, 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 <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you exactly who that was about because it was it was a grammar party that was, was Jose Jose Mourinho Sean Dyche yeah oh wait that's even more <laughs> Jose Mourinho was, was having a having a bit of a bitch about Sean Dyche playing uh was it Sean Dyche or was it uh, there's definitely two instances Sean, might have been Sam Allardyce there's, there's two different instances but definitely both of them laughing it, they might have both been about Jose Mourinho to be honest <laughs> <laughs> yeah classic um but uh yeah, I, I just, I also love it. I think I think you and I definitely, and probably a lot of England fans, have a little mini Sean Dyche in them um, that kind of that kind of revels in in the chaos and in the, the struggles of, of teams who like are unable to break teams down and then complain about it. Like Xavi from Barcelona when he was playing an English side being like, Wee! why doesn't possession count for goals? Yeah, 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 exactly. I, I think it's great. Well, look, that's that's Portugal out. And, um, you know, one thing it does is it stops this sort of the thing that a lot of people have sort of been whispering and sort of dreaming of the Ronaldo Messi final. Um, although even if Portugal made it through to the final, there's no guarantee Ronaldo would have gotten the pitch, <laughs> the way things are standing. Um, but yeah, Morocco through, they will face France. Um don't want to spend too long on it now because I'm sure we'll have uh, we talked about Morocco last week a lot and and we'll have plenty more to talk about them when they do beat France. But um, how do you rate their chances? Do you think that they can do the same thing against France, or do you think that France are maybe that bit too good to to fall for this trick? I think I think the beauty of Morocco is that they've shown that they can do it against literally anyone. 
Um, France will be obviously their biggest test because not only do they have exceptional players, they've got a really good manager. And they've got a manager who, you know, is is basically like bizarro Gareth Southgate and just knows how to win games um, at crucial stages. So uh, I think that Morocco might well... I mean, it's not a hot take, is it? Morocco might well come short. Um, I really hope they don't. But I think that I think they'll be really hard-pressed to beat France. If they can score early, and anyone can score early at any time, that is football, then they're in with a chance. But I saw a, I saw a scary stat um, when uh, when England were playing France, which was that um, I think when France have been leading games at half time, they've won um, like it's like twenty five games out of twenty six. Mm, yeah. So so if Morocco let France score early, that's game over. That is one hundred percent game over. Although I mean, you say but that, the longer, but... but the longer the longer they can hold out. More they've got a chance. No one at this tournament has yet, like, no opposition player has yet scored against Morocco. They've only conceded one goal, and that was an own goal. They thought, you know, let's just concede, let's put it in our own net to make everyone else feel better and give give Canada a chance. Um, other than that, no one's managed to score past them. So, hey, if they can keep that going, yeah, no, hey, you're absolutely right. I think, um, you know, they, they they've got a chance. They've earned this chance, and they have it. Um, and I really hope that they they continue. Uh, to to do this this good work, um, but it will be tough. Let's break for a bit of quick useless trivia before we go into our second two uh, quarterfinals and think about how they're lining us up for the semifinals. Um, the useless trivia I've got for you this week is topical. Um, we saw in that game between England and France, um, one player, Harry Kane, draw level um, uh, with Gary Nicker as uh, England's all-time top scorer uh, with 53 goals. Um, and, of course, Olivier Giroud becoming um, France's all-time top scorer uh, with, funnily enough, also 53 goals. Um which is a strange one, actually. I hadn't thought about it until I just started saying this. Um, and Harry Kane, of <laughs> course, uh, missing his chance to be England's top scorer outright when he missed that penalty. Um, except he didn't really, because he has drawn level with Gary Lineker at 53 goals. Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Gary Lineker, I mean Wayne Rooney, um, with, uh, Wayne Rooney. With, uh, with 53 goals. But what if I told you there is actually someone who has scored more goals for England than either Harry Kane or Wayne Rooney? Is it to do with their... Youth? No, no, no. At the senior level, Owen Goals has scored 57 goals for England. <laughs> that is so bad. It's <laughs> such a bad... But yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah well played. 57 own goals in England's history, so uh, Harry Kane has to score a few more goals before he can say he's a top scorer outright, because um, uh, young Owen has got him pegged for now. Do you know what? I, I, it feels so representative right now. <laughs> the England's top leading goal scorer of all time is own goals. Um, I mean, I, I, we really do play play ourselves sometimes, don't we? I, I haven't looked into it, but like, it wouldn't be surprising if that's the case for a lot of teams, just because obviously own goals accumulates across all of your history. Whereas you know, player to like fifty-seven own goals are, are over like, I mean, how, how it's you know, nearly a hundred years now um, in ninety-two years. Yeah, yeah, probably makes sense, and and, that, yeah. and that's just World Cups, not including all internationals. Yeah, I mean, like I, I think, um, I mean, maybe maybe there's an interesting use of trivia for next time. I mean, we do the maybe we do the research, um, because it would be cool to see, like, as it turns out, only two teams 
don't have own goals as their top scorer. Well, something like that. There's cool. your answer. We we were debating sort of Pele and, and Juste Fontaine and Giroud. The uh, the best Owen. World Cup goal Owen. scorer of all time is Owen Goals. <laughs> there you go. You heard it here first. Cutting edge analysis. <laughs> this podcast has ever. Um, nice. I enjoy. I enjoyed that though. That that tickled me. Um, well, I have uh, a uh, nice piece of trivia here, which uh, I think everyone. We'll not be surprised by it, but we'll just, it'd be nice to have. It'd be nice to have in the locker. Any arguments going forwards? Um, Cristiano Ronaldo has failed to score in all eight of his knockout stage appearances at World Cups, including third place playoffs, going 570 minutes without scoring and taking 27 shots in the process. Sorry, Cristiano. It, it, it really is turning out to be a, a bit of a sad end for a, a, a great, great, great player. You know, not not with a bang, but with a whimper. Uh, you know, the Manchester United eggs are, are now sort of not even starting for Portugal as they sort of crash out against Morocco, and it's it's all um, it's all it's all going quite poorly. Uh, in, 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 I just, it, it almost feels like he's doing like some sort of like cartoon villain esque like implosion do you know what i mean mm. you know where like everything starts going wrong and then the villain just like freaks out and like like breaks breaks the the death ray or, or just like do you know what i mean I, I don't know i just it's yeah it is sad but also he's tarnishing his legacy and it's his fault it's no one's fault but his um so while yes it's sad to see a player that we've admired for probably more of our lives than than not mm-hmm. um go out like this he has very much been the architect of this and you know i'm not going to lose a much sleep over it yeah that's the only truth well look let's talk about uh the other of that sort of uh could you call them a duo that sort of uh you know they'll get packaged together um Lionel messi Rival. um over in the argentina netherlands game which oh what an all-time classic oh my god i was i was absolutely loving every second of this game it was it was fun, wasn't it? I mean, what a what an absolute end to end game, um, like so give and take, um, and I'm glad Argentina won, but I enjoyed Netherlands' fight. I really did. I really did, especially that we got sort of this game and the Brazil Croatia game in the same day, so we had like double penalties, and they were. I'm going to come on to talk about penalties in a little bit because I think there's. Uh, I actually think if I dig through the archives, we talked about exactly this and like my preferred penalty taker order <laughs> when we talked about the AFCON um, and sort of like Mane and, and Salah taking theirs last. But um, during regular play, I mean, you got to say, um, I mean, firstly, Lionel Messi just having an absolutely fantastic game. If Ronaldo's sort of, um, sort of signing off in, on sort of a, a bit of an ignominious note, uh, Lionel Messi is uh, definitely sort of giving us his swan song here um, and sort of playing mm. in, in, in such an exceptional way, creating, I mean, that pass for the first goal was, was just unbelievable. Um, he's always had, and uh, you know, I don't want to praise someone for scoring penalties because I'm of the mind that you should score a penalty if you're a top-level professional footballer. But as we've seen in other games, it's not always easy. Um, but Lionel Messi's always had, for all the strings in his bow, like quite a bad penalty record. Um, and so I've been waiting this tournament for him to, like, come, uh, like in a big moment, to really, really fluff one. Um, but yeah, he scored his in, in regular time here and then also scored his in the shootout. Um but then cancelled out all by um, the man who couldn't do it for Burnley, but is somehow able to do it against World Cup favourites Argentina, <laughs> Wout Weghorst. Wout Weghorst, what a what a what a wicked player! What a what a good player! Um, it was. Uh, I mean, look, 
two goals. You can't argue with it. Um, two not bad goals either. Um, being in the right place, right time, taking his chances. Um, I mean, it was pretty late in the game. Um, 101 minutes with only 10 minutes of extra time awarded. But, um, you know, I think they had that free kick, didn't they? So it's uh, it, it makes sense. Um, and it is, it is funny, isn't it? Because it's like Giroud. Like the World Cup just produces these players that, um, even players that you might know already, um, but that just seem to like go into new gears for their for their country or even go into new gears in different systems when supported by different players. And clearly, all Val Vekos needs to be an elite world-class striker is an elite world-class midfield behind him. So, you know, top six, get your checkbooks out. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely one that when Burnley sort of cart him off I was like he's only on loan but I was like that seems very premature there's definitely a player there um, you know that maybe isn't going to be he even scored a few goals for Burnley I think he scored maybe two for Burnley I don't think he had a great record for Burnley but you know he came into a team that was struggling went ended up going down and obviously it's the you know coming into a new country and all that stuff I, I kind of felt like he was um, you know I guess he's on loan so he's going to play in there I think he's playing for Wolfsburg at the moment so it's not like he's been um, shipped off to nowhere if anything he's sort of um Oh, no, it's for Besiktas. Um, but, you know, he's still playing in, in the top flight. Um, yeah, I did, did think it was a little bit harsh. But, but anyway, let's let's talk about the... Uh, I mean, first, that free kick, unbelievable. And there was one... That's what I was thinking about Wolfsburg, mm. is that he scored an identical one for Wolfsburg two years ago. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that clip, but it's it's fantastic. Um, like basically identical. But I want to talk about the, yeah. the, the penalties, because obviously went to penalties. There's a couple of things I want to talk about uh, across the this game and the next one. One of the things I want to talk about first, though, was this game was a very fiery clash. Um, the Argentinian players were all very sort of het up. The Netherlands, the Dutch players were sort of winding them up all game, uh, and the Argentinian players were definitely biting at it. And then when they scored the winner, the winning penalty, all the Argentinian players like were celebrating like in front of the Dutch players and like running past and cheering. And I saw like loads of yeah. loads of like rugby fans who like firstly guys be quiet, but loads of like sort of rugby fans <laughs> and otherwise like denigrators of football being like, this isn't real sport. Sport's supposed to be about respecting your opponents and you know being a good sport and shaking hands at the end and having a good smile and I was like you can fuck off mate this is exactly what's great about football the shit housery. also are they really trying to pretend like rugby doesn't have any shit housery? Uh, are they really trying to pretend that after bloodgate are they really trying to pretend that after like there are fights literal bust ups like every single game where people get punched in the face like even if they shake hands afterwards like are you are, is that the behaviour you're supporting I just think like, the, the, yeah, the idea yeah, nah. that everyone's got to, yeah. you know, be well behaved. Like that's part as a fan, you know, even sort of, you know, from a from a friendly perspective. Like if you are a Manchester City fan and your mate is a Manchester United fan, a big part of the fun of supporting those teams is getting to go to your mate after you have a famous win and go ah, and not sort of go like, well, you know, you played very well, uh, young man. You know, your 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 team did put us to to the sword very nearly, but we luckily got away with it. You know, it's it's that's part of the fun is like sort of being a bit of a shit house and especially like I can absolutely sympathise with the uh, the Argentine players. Um, you know, giving it the big and after winning a, a really sort of cagey match where they've been getting wound up a lot. Also, one in which. Also, one in which Netherlands antagonised them loads. Yeah, yeah and exactly. And also, Netherlands have a history of antagonising teams. You know, that World Cup final in 2010, um, Nigel Jong literally like kicked Iniesta in the chest. Um, so, yeah, 
yeah no yeah no so 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 i loved it and i think anyone who was sort of going oh this isn't what sport's really about i think you don't understand sport personally um because even at my sort of you know low 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 level blasting in uh you know goals against uh you know young children down at the local local uh park i love to just absolutely showboat and celebrate because that's what it's all about really (laughs) (laughs) yeah there's that's it's the same isn't it (laughs) it's exactly the same it's exactly Um, the same I mean, I also just think like, um, you know, with that, like that messy interview afterwards where he's like, he's like, basically like, what are you saying kind of thing to, to Val Bedcourt, I think it was. Um, and I think we've, we've kind of been quite enjoying over this World Cup, the fact that like filters are a little bit lower than they normally are. Mm. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, players are calling out referees and it's quite nice. And for whatever reason, players are giving candid interviews and it's quite nice. For whatever reason, we're kind of seeing a little bit more personality from players that I've observed my whole life, like Messi. I've never seen him more like impassioned than than in that post-match interview against um netherlands and it's it's nice to see yeah it is nice to see and I, that, that's another point that you raised there because obviously messi had that post-match interview so too did uh, emiliano martinez where he gave the most scathing sort of post-match review of, of a referee i've seen in the modern era i mean back in the day you know it was that uh, people were a little bit more fire from the hip but these days you just don't see it as, as explicitly done when people sort of go and i think jordan henson did something similar for england not as uh, as much but I oh, know Maguire rather, not not Hanson. But yeah, Martinez coming out and just yeah, being like, did. the referee is terrible. He should never referee another one of our games again, blah, blah. And I was like, this is particularly impressive when you consider that Argentina did win this game. Like, all the players were still furious afterwards, just at the idea it's that nice see, the referee could have lost him the game. It wasn't like, oh, we won, so it doesn't matter. And I, I, I like that. I like that, you know, I, you know I'm... I'm the the world's you know biggest referee hater. Uh, and I think that when they get called out, it's fantastic. But I think it's very easy to... If a team loses, if a player or a manager from that team then comes out and says, oh, X, Y, Z was bad, it's very easy to sort of sweep that under the rug and go, oh, well, you're just salty because the result didn't go the way you wanted. The fact that Argentina did win and are through to the semi-finals, and yet their players are still so annoyed at how poorly the game was officiated that they're willing to risk retrospective action. Like, Martinez, it wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world. I mean, I, think it, I don't think they would ever do this because they would get absolutely torched. But, like... We've seen players, you know, get bans and stuff like that and, and fines and things like that um, before for, for really going off. They're, they're under investigation. They're under investigation for two two, two accounts, I think, I, Argentina. I can't imagine. I mean, even FIFA have to recognise that, like, as it stands, this World Cup is, like, on the precipice. If they, like, ban a player in in a World Cup semi-final because of, you know, comments they've made and then that ends up being sort of a bit of a wash, it's going to be, a, like, no one's going to look at that and go, well, Argentina, that's what you get. Everyone's going to go, FIFA ruining football again. Yeah, no, look, I, I completely agree. Um, I mean, so and I think the, the FIFA disciplinary committee are also um, opening up procedures against um, the Dutch Football Association about potential breaches in the same game. But, um, yeah, apparently, I think it's related to um, like about security at matches and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it. I agree with you. The like they wouldn't be able to surely even it would be too, that it would be too high profile. Well, you say that, Cam, but as soon as you said that, I now immediately believe that they will. <laughs> <laughs> because that is literally FIFA's MO, being like, surely you won't host a World Cup in Qatar. <laughs> and FIFA's like, yeah, watch me. 
I think uh, the, um, the referee in this game as well, I mean, just want to, just want to mention before we talk about the penalties, uh, an all-time world record uh, performance for the referee, not in a great way, uh, 17 yellow cards and a red card from um, Antonio Matteo Lajos, um, who was just brandishing cards like uh, like it was going out of fashion, like he, he wasn't going to have another chance to do it, um, just booking left, right and centre, and yeah, look, it was a very physical game, uh, but I think he really overrated the pudding. Was there a red card? Yeah, there was a, there was a red card after full time. Um, Denzel Tom Fries got a second yellow uh, after, at the conclusion of the game for sort of bickering with the uh, the Argentinian players. And because I know he got a yellow card in, in, he got a yellow card at the end of extra time, mm-hmm. and then he got another yellow card after the end of the penalties. Wow, I did not know that. Mm, yeah, it's uh, so yeah, he was he was <laughs> brandishing cards like it was going out of fashion. Um, and uh, I mean, certainly from the comments of the the Argentinian players, it has gone out of fashion. It's funny, isn't it? Because like, <laughs> you could just imagine like people in like up in up in referee HQ then being like, oh, they're complaining that we're not giving fouls in England versus France, but then they're complaining that we're giving too many fouls in, in Argentina Netherlands. What do they want from us? It's like, the correct decisions, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can see them sort of having exactly that mindset of being like, well, pick a side, guys. No, no, it's like it's the Goldilocks things, guys. We don't want you to be like too cold or too hot. We want you to be just right. Um. Yeah. Penalties yeah. now then, um, because uh, obviously Argentina won on penalties. Uh, and first takers for Netherlands and Argentina, Virgil van Dijk, the captain uh, and the first taker for the Netherlands, Lionel Messi, the captain and the first taker for Argentina, um, both stepped up. So we had a lot of conversation about, you know, setters, um, so penalty taker sort of setting the tone. Um, and Virgil van Dijk, missed his, and then Netherlands went on to lose the game, whereas Lionel Messi scored his, and, and they then went on to win. Yeah, I mean, look, it's... You've got to rate the fact that Van Dijk stepped up to take it. Um, it's funny, because it's, it's hard not to draw a parallel with Harry Kane, the captain, stepping up to take it, and maybe that was the wrong decision. Um, it's Yes, it's, uh, it, it's a real disappointment, and you're absolutely right. Like That did set the tone. That's what captains do. They lead. And unfortunately, Virgil van Dijk led them to a loss. Um, and he was partly responsible for that. I think that's a problem when your captain is not necessarily... Uh, uh, like, will Virgil van Dijk have ever taken a penalty? Oh, actually, probably for Liverpool at some point, right? In some shootout. Oh, oh he definitely has. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've seen him take it's, it's just escaping my mind at the moment. But he, you know, he's not someone that you would immediately not think... In, not in open play. In, no, in no, no, no. But yeah, at, at some point, t- there's going to be an absolutely obvious example that Liverpool fans will be shaking their fists at listening to me saying this. I can't, I can't summon it to the, the front of mind at the moment. But he'll, he'll have definitely taken uh, one or two penalties for, for, for Liverpool, yeah. Um, but... You know, the fact that um, he went first rather than sort of a more traditional a- attacking player. I mean, that, that's always a, another sort of bugbear of mine. It's like whenever you see centre-backs going to take penalties, and I'm always like, but but that's not their job! <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's tricky because I feel like... Let's look at... If you look at this Argentina side, sorry, this, this Netherlands side, who would you... Because I, I, I think... Sometimes, when it makes sense, the captain wants to go first. Sometimes, I think also it's quite nice that the captains maybe go second. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Have the have your if your best player at taking penalties is is up for it and is a big game player, let them take the first one, settle the nerves, and then the captain comes in, reinforces. Oh. Do you know what I mean? I think that's a really nice narrative. I'll, I'll, um, I'll say now what I said when we talked about the Afcon, and I'll say it again because it is a still relevant and b very confusing, so it, it needs thinking through. <laughs> I think the order should be. Your second best penalty taker goes first, 
your third best penalty taker goes second, and then your best penalty taker and your talisman should go third, a la Luka Modric for Croatia, to sort of like calm things down, lock it in secured if you if you need uh, a goal to sort of lock things in, or to turn the tide. And I, I think best penalty taker goes third. That's my that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Um, I, I definitely take that you want a scene setter to sort of start things off, which I think is why it should be your second best uh, person to go first. But I think that that third penalty is where uh, where it all pivots. I think under no circumstance should your best penalty take your fifth though well you say that but like you know the netherlands the netherlands already missed their first two i think do you know what can i can i just actually i'm not even sure i know this can you change the order of your penalty takers in game like as it happens can you change the order of your penalty takers yeah you can you can change it whenever but it's just that t- typically so so here's what i don't get if if say say like this scenario happens. Netherlands are playing Argentina. It's it's the it's the the penalty shootout. The and you've put like the captain is third. The the talisman captain is going third. Okay. Mm-hmm. If the first penalty is missed, the talisman captain has to change the order and has to go second. Uh yeah yeah I I I, I, I would say that's fair. But you but that's why you put your second best. I think on. it needs to be it needs to be more reactive than it is. I feel like it's so often like you know for example like Neymar not even getting to take a penalty because he went fifth. It's like if he if he changed the order and gone, no, I'm going to step up now. This is my job as as captain and as lead lead striker, a lead attacker. Like I am taking this next penalty. Like you will go after me. Like I think that's good. That's good leadership, and I I don't, I don't see it enough. I'd like to see it more. I, I guess it's a bit of a tricky situation. Like if you're a player and the first, I mean, and maybe not if you're uh, if you're Lionel Messi or someone, but like for most teams, if the first penalty is missed and the second guy goes up and you're like, no, 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 I need to take this one because I'll definitely score. The other player might be like, well, fuck you. No, no, no. That's not how you lead. That's not what you would do. The first person misses, and immediately, if I'm the captain, I go up to the, the second taker. I take him to the side and I go, look, I know you're next. I want to go first because I want to show this team as their leader that we can still win this. I want to lead from the front. Can I please take this next penalty? And I want you to go next because I want you to cement that. Yeah, I think I think, do, I, I, you, I think in a vacuum do, it makes you sense. You do it in a way, you know, you, you do it in a way that, do you know what I mean? That's what leading people is. Yeah, yeah no, um, no I, th- I think in a vacuum it makes sense. I'm just saying in, in, in actual... Um, in practice, it might be slightly difficult, especially when sort of everyone's sort of very high stress. Probably even the leaders, like in quite a high stress situation, you've agreed to a plan, you've set it. It takes like a lot to then sort of go against that and be like, oh, okay, we need to change this, even if it is. And I agree, yeah, often the right decision. But but I mean, the the flip side is, and I, we don't need to spend too long on this. But the flip side is like, no team goes into a game with like one plan, and then if it's not working, like oh, I guess the plan didn't work. They have backup plans. Um, you know, a manager could 100% be like, "Look, I want I want Neymar taking the third penalty." But you know, if if they get, if they get the first one, I want Neymar. I want you taking that second one. If we miss that, yeah. I want you taking the second one. That that happens at all other aspects of the game. Is that you have a backup plan. So it's not it's not a crazy unfeasible idea that you would change the order of penalties based on how well you were doing. Yeah, it's it's very true. Um, the winning penalty, of course, was scored by Lautaro Martinez, who has had a pretty shocking tournament uh, so far, but that will have been uh, huge for him to be able to sort of secure them going through to the next round. Um Mm. and may even sort of boost one of the areas for Argentina where, I mean, they've had Julian Alvarez starting, um, you know, since that first game. So 
it's not necessarily an area they're wanting, but having him come in with more confidence because he can be a top striker uh, on his day yeah. ha- hasn't been so far this this tournament. Um, so that will just well, be. He's not even starting anymore. No, no, he's not. But even when he's come on, he's been he's been pretty hopeless. Uh, so you know, Argentina and Argentina fans will be hoping that that um, adds another string to their bow. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, one thing I don't understand is like, why bring Cody Gakpo off? Before before penalties, I didn't really get that sub either. To be honest with you, um, I was sl- like, I get it if you've got a specialist guy, but he didn't even take one. Who's this Noah Lang dude? Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't really understand that sub either, especially because like that was like what seven minutes from the end, and Cody Gakpo has been their most dangerous player all tournament. Um, you would think if there's a time to dig deep and sort of keep him on and pray for a moment of magic, it would be from that player at that time. Um, yeah, I mean Noah Lang hasn't even he's played. I don't think he's. I don't think he played a single minute before then. Uh, no, no, he hadn't in the World Cup. So what? I, bizarre. Anyway, really, really strange stuff. Well, let, let's let's finish off with our, our last quarterfinal um, before we talk about the the matchup that's going to be in the, in the semis between these two sides. Uh, Croatia beating Brazil, uh, a huge, huge upset. Um, which is not to say that Croatia aren't a very competent team. Of course, this is their back to back, you know, time in the semi final. They are a, a World Cup heritage team uh, for our times, to be sure. Um, but Brazil, I think a lot of people are looking at as the you know one of the favourites, if not the outright favourites, um, and had obviously like a very stat squad. Um, but just couldn't make it click in this game and, you know, linchpinned by an absolutely commanding performance from a 37-year-old uh, Luka Modric. Croatia managed to hang on mm. uh, and then when Brazil did provide that moment of magic uh, via Neymar, provide a moment of magic of their own uh, to get back in it and then take it to penalties. Yeah, exactly. And look, I think uh, I think if Croatia hadn't knocked us out in 2018, <laughs> I'd like this side a lot more. Um, but you know, they they know they know how to win games. Um, they really do, and they've got a real fight to them. They've got a real bite to them. And in some ways, it was it was a real contrast because, you know, Br- Brazil are a really exciting attacking team. But uh, criticism has been levied of them in the past. They do not have uh, good leadership, and that they do not have. Um, you know enough backbone um, and I think this game proved that yeah yeah absolutely and and you know a lot of breakout stars I mean it might be reductive to call um, Guardiol a, a breakout star because he's been highly rated for the, the better part of a year and has obviously been doing his thing over over at Leipzig but um, he's been fantastic this tournament obviously the keeper is the the big star um, Lovakovic, um who has spent his mm. entire career um, either at Dinamo Zagreb or at Zagreb uh, the two sort of clubs in the in his sort of hometown you would be very surprised if he doesn't end up venturing outside of that city pretty soon <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think he's got um he's got an exciting future ahead of him. Um I mean, yeah, it's a it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's a shame that you know the pressure of taking that first penalty was put on a very young lad, Rodrigo, who's only 21. Um that wasn't quite right. Um it's yeah. I mean, hey, you and I talked about the fact that uh Brazil, you know, I we weren't uh, well at least I wasn't a big fan of of the way Brazil conducted themselves against South Korea and I kind of feel like I, I can't say that it's like shades of the same brush but it feels representative of the fact that like they know how to how to celebrate when they're doing well. You and Roy Keane are both rubbing your hands when uh, when Marquinhos hit the post, weren't you? They can dance about that now, oh. why don't you? Oh, obviously yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but I mean it's. It is vindicating because 
they dominated that game against South Korea and then suddenly they get a really tough opposition that will not go away, that will not roll over um, and they capitulate. I did think maybe Brazil, um, I think maybe Tite got the subs wrong as well during this game. I, I don't, he started very well in the Premier League. I don't want to let the Premier League sort of like colour my opinion of, of him in the tournament, but I've just not been that impressed by Anthony at this tournament. And conversely, I've been very impressed by Gabriel Martinelli, um, both this season and in, in the World Cup. Um, and then similarly, someone like Bruno Gamarish not, not, getting a, not getting a chance to come on. I thought, are these players that could change the game in your favour? Probably. Um, and probably before, you know, extra time and when, when there's a chance to lose it. Not not at all Premier League bias in that in that verdict. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I I know what you mean. I think the tricky thing was Croatia nullified Brazil so effectively in that first half that quite early into the second half they just needed to hit the change button. Um, so it maybe wasn't the the best solution, but it was a solution. It was something different that they had to try, um, and you know they they didn't score in in full-time, but they did manage to get one in extra time, so it kind of worked to an extent. Just um, Croatia had enough fire in the belly to, to strike back. Yeah, I suppose so. I, I just would have... There's a few changes I'd have made. I think Gamarish especially, like, when they were having trouble sort of breaking Croatia down, if you think about a player who can, when he's got the ball on his feet, either find a really, you know, solid laser pass to break through the lines, or he can just run with it himself and he's able to score from range. And he's, he's, he's one of those guys that you don't really know what he's going to do when he's got the ball at feet because he could do three things really amazing, like, equal, equally amazingly. So I would have loved to see him come on. And I think every second I've seen Gabriel Martinelli at the World Cup, he's looked electric. Um, and it's definitely one of those players, you know, we were talking about... Um, yeah you know uh yeah. jack Grealish or, or mason mount coming on i think martinelli especially if it's like you know 65 minutes plus and you've got a bit of tired legs going on you see that guy warming up you're just like oh for christ's sake yeah yeah exactly um, um well look, let's let, let's let's look at the penalties then um because i want to sort of continue the conversation we were just having then neymar 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 when will these players learn? Stop going fifth. It's just, whether you think it's because they think that they're that, that's sort of their best chance of doing it. Whether you think that some people sort of have been talking about it's because these players want to make it all about them, uh, or, or, or whatever your thought are your thoughts are around it. You are not guaranteed to take five penalties in the shootout. You are opening yourself up for massive failure if your best taker goes fifth. Yep, that is correct. I just I, I... and then. Yeah, yeah, I agree, man. I agree. It, it just seemed like such a Rodrigo, another one who, like, yeah, as you say, very, very young guy. Um, obviously, is an attacking player. He plays for Real Madrid. He's a very, very, very good quality player. But uh, yeah, Neymar should be either going here or, in, in my opinion, third, um, uh, as Luka Modric did. You know, Luka Modric, the the opposite there. When he sort of scored that penalty, you knew it was like locked in at that point. Yeah, agreed. Um, fully agree. I think. It was dumb. Wrong decision. They made a mistake. Yeah. They were too... I think you're right. I think they were too too focused on, like, the fairy tale. Neymar's going, the winning penalty. Um, and didn't pay off. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, fo- focus on what's in front of you rather than sort of thinking about whatever the headline might be. Or I, j- I just, I don't understand this idea of saving a, a best penalty taker for fifth. We talked about it at the AFCON. Uh, we talked about it, I think, in World Cup qualifiers as well. Um, and, and again, here, it just it just baffles me that managers could ever, you know, sign off on that. I'd be like, you take it first or third, uh, <laughs> or, or you're not taking one at all. Yeah, I agree. We're, not, we're not saving it for, for, for you to have a for you to have a nice sort of like headline moment because uh, it ain't about <laughs> you, son. Exactly. Well, 
good time as any. Let's move into a brief discussion of the semi-final because we are running quite late on time. Mm-hmm. Um, your your broadline top top edits tomorrow game, Wednesday game, Argentina Croatia, France Morocco. Which game are you gonna watch with more excitement? It's it's interesting actually because I think both of these games could play out very similarly. I think both Croatia and Morocco are going to be doing the uh, you know d- defense first kind of uh, kind of <laughs> kind of game, uh, whereas both France and Argentina are going to be sort of going hell for leather. I'm definitely more excited for again like I I, I want Morocco to get to the final and, and win the whole thing. So there's that part of it that's exciting me. I think just in terms of the football, Argentina versus Croatia has got to be the really exciting one. Um, you know, especially with sort of all the uh, the potential sort of messiism of it all. Uh, you know, either Messi's going to go crashing out and miss his last chance at a World Cup, or he's going to make it to the final, and that big question mark will be there. Can he finish off his career with a with a World Cup trophy? Uh, so I think that's the one that I'll enjoy more. Um, but as you say, I would love to see Morocco get like an early goal and then to spend the remaining 89 minutes on the edge of my seat as they sort of weather like absolute attack after attack <laughs> after attack from France. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oh, we shall see. We shall see. Um, but I think the fun thing as well is that they really, any of these, like I could see any of these two four teams in the final. Yeah, I can see any of these four teams winning it, you know, like uh, even, you know, people sort of scoff at the idea of Morocco winning it. But hey, if they could do exactly what they've been doing so far and just keep doing it, then uh, who's to say we couldn't have uh, the most sort of like unlikely World Cup winner of all time? And that's exciting uh, for a number of reasons. It would be spectacular. Yeah. But I also think, you know, in the same way that for, for Morocco, every every minute spent not conceding is is giving you more confidence you know every every time they beat a big team and go through obviously that will give you so much more confidence and and the more the narrative of like the first african team ever to get this far to get this far to get this far is pushed like i think the more the more fire they will feel the more passionate they will feel the more supported they will feel um you know i i can't imagine anything other than almost the entire stadium supporting morocco in this game and that has an impact Especially when it comes to you know siege mentality, trying to trying to park the bus, trying to trying to hold out, putting that last extra little bit of energy into your challenges, things like that. Um, so and they'll have that, and that is at least. I think at least a twenty percent buff. Yeah, it's it's a great point actually that we haven't really talked about. But Morocco, obviously, it's a it's a North African nation, um, and as many pointed out, you know, when they were sort of talking about uh, Morocco being a Middle Eastern nation, which it is not, um, when they played against Spain, you know, technically Spain is closer to Qatar than, than Morocco is, um, but. Very, it, it does have uh, you know big Arab Arabic populace and Maghreb population. So a lot of the Arab and Arabic fans who have been there have been sort of supporting Morocco as a second team. So you've seen a lot of it uh, with mm-hmm. these uh, you know stadiums packed full of people cheering for Morocco, as well as I assume like most uh, you know people just loving the underdogs. Any England fans who are still out there are going to be supporting Morocco for sure. Um, anyone who's been knocked out by France or been you know humbled by them at any point over the last <laughs> few years, which is going to be a large amount of teams, yeah. is going to be supporting Morocco. So yeah, that could uh, that could help them do it. Um, but that is probably a good place to end it for this week. I think so. And, uh, you know, we come to the end of England's chances for another World Cup. But I think our dreams live on through the chances of Messi winning something and the chances of, of Morocco winning something. So I, I'd say I'm feeling big picture. 
more optimistic than I normally do when England go out because I'm looking forward to to seeing what comes next. I still feel invested. I, I, I wish I shared your optimism. I am in a in a in a pit of sadness and, and misery. <laughs> but you're right. There's always 2026. Um, I feel like you perked up more quicker than I did on the day, and then it's maybe sat with you longer. <laughs> anyway, Rupert, uh, great to talk to you as always. Cam, thank you very much, and thank you to everyone at home for listening. Enjoy the semis. Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.